edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 3rd, 2018, and this is episode 2211, 2211 of the Survival Podcast. Because I'm a freaking weirdo and I pay attention to numeric patterns, I can't help but notice that the first is 22 and the second is 11, which is half of 22. And the second half added back together to itself would then create the first half, 2211. Guy, yeah, I, it's just me. I'm sorry. I do stuff like that. It's called seeing patterns. Maybe it's why I like permaculture and pattern recognition so much. Anyway, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, the pattern recognition that we know when we are in the normal scheduled programming, which we are back to after some diversions, is since it's Thursday, it's a listener call show. This is where you call 866-65-THINK, the think line, 866-65-THINK. After you call those numbers, you'll hear me yammering on about how to leave a message. So you leave a message, and maybe it'll end up like this. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact, and use the speak pipes to send us a message through the magic of the interwebs. And uh, either way, we'll try to get you on the air if you follow the rules. Ask your question or make your friggin' point in one to two sentences and then give me the details. That will be more likely to get through my screening process than when 30 seconds in, I still don't know what you're talking about, and I delete your call and go on to the next one. Not because I'm a jerk, but because i got to get stuff done, guys, just like you do. Anyway, what do we have today? Quite a few questions because there's a couple where I don't really know or they're very brief answers. So we have dealing with mesquite trees in your pasture. We have hard water and electric canners. Red dot and other sight options for a lever gun. Thoughts on good cookware and stainless versus ceramic. Harvesting cooking, storing, and long-term growing of the asparagus plant. Uh, first year planting of hugel beds. How to size the spillway for your swells and sizing a pump for your aquaponics systems. And last but not least, how should school teachers prep for the coming education uh, market shifts that I think will be coming in the next 10 to 20 years? All of that and more uh, we'll get to in just a bit. Before we do, just a real quick reminder today that if you like this show and you like the work that we do, please consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. If you become an MSB member, you'll get a bunch of discounts and we'll pay for your membership and you'll help support the show. It's really that easy. Just check out all of the great vendors that do discounts. Use a few of them here and there. And by the end of the year, when you do the math, you'll be like, gee, I got paid to help Jack. Serious to God, that's how I set the thing up. Check it out today at the survivalpodcast.com. Just click on members to learn more. And with that, let's head right on into it and go ahead and take the first call. This one on dealing with mesquite trees. Hey, Jack, this is Jeremy. I live down here in Central Texas, near Fort Hood. My question is, how do you get rid of mesquite trees in your pasture? Uh, details I have about 30 acres. Um, most of it is cow pasture with um, good coastal hay in it, but the mesquite trees are encroaching into it. Um, none of them are big. Um, they're all small enough to be knocked down with a with a tractor or a riding mower, but I need to get rid of them permanently. Now I, you know, rotate my cows and goats through there and even I'm looking at the possibility of tractoring my chickens through there, you know, in a rotational basis with the other animals, but I need to get rid of that mesquite. Um, any ideas? 
you know, any information would be helpful. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You know, the, the real answer to this is, oh, I mean, really, I, I don't have a lot of experience with this particular issue trying to prevent trees from growing. Uh, good grazing habits alone should actually be pretty useful. Um, I do think that most of your uh, mesquite shoots, even though they are thorny, uh, probably get grazed and trampled. But in the end, cows propagate mesquite. So then you really don't get very far by doing the grazing, I guess. And uh, poultry and pork, I don't know that would really help much either. Um, there is a traditional agricultural method that may be usable, though it does use herbicides. It's called the Brush Busters uh, Mesquite Control Method. You can just Google that and you'll find it. Uh, it's put out by the Texas uh, AgriLife Extension from Texas A&M University. And what it involves really doing is spraying a, a concentrated, uh, powerful herbicide only on the plants that you want to die. So it's a spot application of herbicide. I am not a fan of herbicides. However, I also acknowledge the usefulness of tools, and that may actually be the best bet here. It's the only option that I can give you. I would say another option is, you know, trees growing is not necessarily a bad thing, though you don't want your pasture filled in, especially with young spindly mesquites. They're pretty nasty trees. But it may be the case that you have an opportunity using this the mesquite that will naturally propagate to create a silbo pasture model where you use the trees as shade and windbreaks. Um, you would think that would actually make the problem worse because there would be a greater supply of seed and stuff like that. Uh, and it might. I, I don't know. Maybe something like thornless honey locust as an analog uh, would be better for that situation. Um, just know that thornless honey locusts over time tend to become thorned honey, honey locusts again uh, as they naturally propagate themselves. Um, but you have a tree that grows by itself in a harsh environment. So it seems like there may be some usefulness there. What I'm going to do, I'm going to turn this question into a textual question on your behalf. I'm going to get it over to Jeff Lawton, who, uh, though, has not done extensive work here in the United States with our thorny mesquite and cattle, um, where he's from and where he's put the majority of his work into being Australia, they have plenty of things that are thorny uh, that cause the same type of issue, and maybe he'll be able to give you a better answer. If there's someone out there holistically managing land and they have a way that they're controlling mesquite trees, specifically in the U.S. Southwest, please do chime in and uh, let us know what you're doing, how well it works. One of the things I think you'll find to be the case here, no matter what method you use, this will not be a once-and-done process. This will be an ongoing thing uh, that you'll have to deal with over time. Um, so that's the best I can do for you. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, it's Becky calling from Utah, and uh, my question is about the carry pressure canner. I think it was your item of the day back in January. Uh, I've actually had one for a while, and I've been canning uh, everything in it, uh, soups, shredded pork, uh, just all kinds of stuff that you need to pressure can. Uh, so I've been using it for a while, and I've noticed that it has a ring around the inside of it where the water uh, is, and it, I guess it's hard water deposits, 
it's just got this white ring around the inside of it. And I thought, you know, this is probably from some kind of mineral deposit or something in the water. The water is hard around here where I live. Uh, I'm just wondering if I need to worry about that. Do I need to try to remove it? Um, will it damage the inside of the, the canner pot? Uh, or, or should I just ignore it? Um, anyway, if you have any insights on that, um, I figured this might be a good question for your show. And uh, I appreciate your show so much. I've learned so much, and it's helped me expand uh, my horizons for prepping and, and being ready for anything. So, um, anyway, I appreciate you. Thanks. So I have not noticed this problem, and I have fairly hard water, uh, but it's probably because you're a better ant than me when it comes to canning, and you're probably using your canner more than I am. Um but I would not worry about it. I wouldn't get out of sorts trying to remove it. The If there is a downside to the carry canner, it is that that metal liner you're talking about, in fact, has some sort of a, uh, a uh, stick-free coating, a la Teflon-like coating. Now, I don't see this as a problem. And the reason I don't see this as a problem is because the canner, uh, whether you're using it as a slow kick cooker, whether you kick it on the braise with it or whatever you do, it never reaches temperatures high enough for it to actually cause any kind of problem with Teflon. Teflon is not a bad thing. Uh, the problem is that inevitably when you're cooking on a range top with it, sooner or later you get it hotter than you should, and that's when you have leaching and off-gassing and things like that that can produce some nasty things we'd prefer not to have in our diet. So I think if you start scrubbing on it heavily or something to get it out of there, you may end up having an issue um, with it actually scraping away some of that coating, which when you're canning and all doesn't matter, but if you also use yours like I do for cooking, for instance, I pressure cook ribs in there. And I don't know if I'll ever put ribs in my smoker again, other than maybe to uh, put a little smoke flavor them before they go in there with a little cold smoke or something. Um, I take my ribs and I pressure cook them for 55 minutes. Baby back, St. Louis, doesn't matter what they are. And then uh, I finish them on the grill with a little light coating of barbecue sauce till the edges are crispy until the meat firms back up. And, oh, my God, is it fantastic. Uh, so if you want to do those types of things, too, obviously, you really don't want to do anything to affect that coating, whatever it in fact is. And I actually don't think it's Teflon. Uh, it seems more durable. If you do want to get that mark off of there, and if it is, in fact, calcates from hard water, uh, it's alkaline. And alkaline and acid, you know, they don't cooperate. They actually make little fizzy things, and one dissolves into the other. So what you could try is put some vinegar on a, you know, just do a spot application, a pretty heavy wipe of vinegar on it, and let it sit for a little bit and see if it wipes off. And uh, if, it, if it does come off for you, it's probably definitely calcium buildup. And you can just wipe the whole thing down with vinegar and get it off. What would I do? I don't care. I'm not worried about it. It's not a big deal to me. I wouldn't do anything at all. But if you want to remove it, vinegar and acid to the base is probably the way to go. Again, I would spot applicate it just to make sure it's not going to have any adverse effect uh, on the uh, on the, uh, the the coating on that liner. I've had several people ask about a stainless steel liner replacement for it. Probably cost almost as much as the Dadgon Canner. Um, I, I haven't seen anybody yet saying, "Look at my." liner and having it, it damaged because of the way you use it it's probably got a very very long life cycle i've had mine for two years and while i haven't used it probably as much 
as this young woman who called in to us from Utah. Uh, I've used it a lot, and I probably use it for cooking more than anything else. So, yeah, I, I'm not too worried about that, and I wouldn't worry about it in your situation. Let's take another one, this one on lever action guns. Hello, Jeff. This is Mr. Lunja from the People's Republic of California. And I got a question for you today about shopping for red dot optics. Here's some of the details. I have a Henry Lover Action Carbine in 357. It's a fun gun, but the sights aren't the best. I was thinking of upgrading the optics, something that would be suitable for a geezer such as myself. I'd consider the scope, but I think they're better for long shots, such as a deer rifle. What might work is a red dot scope, maybe something with a 2x magnification. Just was wondering if you had any thoughts about what to look for when shopping for a red dot, and if you have any recommendations. Love your show. Thank you very much. Okay, let's let's talk about all of your options here, and then I will give you some recommendations for each one. One option you have is to go with a red dot sight, like you said. Now, generally, you don't get a red dot sight with magnification. You either get a red dot scope with magnification, which puts just extra weight and bulk on the gun, or we get a red dot sight, and we can also get a magnifier to work in conjunction with that red dot sight. I personally don't like the idea of adding a lot of weight to a uh, lever action gun, anything bulky. And if you're going to do that anyway, then I'm going to go more towards a scope. So our other option, in my opinion, that's, that's a good idea, is a low magnification variable scope. The third option, and one that you didn't mention but you really might want to consider, is not putting any type of optic at all on it. I agree with you that the buckhorn style sights that come with the majority of lever action guns and frankly the majority of iron sighted guns are not that great. Um, there's a couple things about them that aren't great. One is that because you have that two sight system where we have to align the front and rear sight, they, they take longer to get an acquisition and be sure of your target before you pull the trigger in most instances. And they also maybe don't show up as well as we would like them to in certain light conditions and all. The other thing is, the longer the distance between two sites, the more forgiving they are. The, it's called the site radius. And the closer a site radius is, the less forgiving it is. This is one of the reasons that shooting a pistol is a little more difficult than shooting a rifle, including if we're shooting a pistol on arrest, where we should negate the fact that the rifle's against the shoulder and the pistol's held out with one or two hands. It's part of that, not all of it, part of it is that sight radius. So if we can make the sight radius longer, we should. And the way that we do that is by moving the sight from forward of the receiver to the back of the receiver by the eye, and when we do that, the best thing to do is go to a peep sight, aperture sight, whatever you want to call it, a circular sight, a ghost ring, what have you. So that's another option. Let's start with that one and why I like it so much. Lever action guns were invented at a time when almost no, I'm not going to say no one, but almost no one was using optics. The gun was never designed to do its best work with anything mounted on top of it. Everything about the lever gun is designed to be quick, light, fast handling. So it, the, if we stay pure to the form, 
that last option going to an op, uh, an, uh, 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 I'm sorry, an aperture site, a peephole site, call it what you want to, a ghostering version thereof, would be the most true to form, and it will dramatically improve the utility of the rifle. Uh, this is why all your military rifles have that type of a sight back by your eye. And what happens, many people that have never shot through a sight like that don't seem to realize that the rear sight becomes very important but almost irrelevant to what you're doing. The human eyeball, the minute that circle's back there and you're looking through that circle, wants desperately, and it's just it's, it's, it's internal math and logic circuits of the brain, for that front sight to be in the center. And therefore, it ends up in the center. And it becomes a lot like shooting a red dot, or in the front sight usually don't glow, and all you really look at is the front sight. And it is probably the best form of, of iron sights that you can have. And again, when you look at where it counts the most, let's say military service where somebody's trying to kill you and you got to kill them back first, um, that's why those sights are there. And if you look at some of the more effective carbines that have been released, the more popular carbines uh, for woods hunting, you look at things like the, uh, the Ruger Deerfield carbine. Uh, they brought that sight back where it belongs, and it's a much better brush gun out of the box without adding optics than something like the Marlin or the Henry, both of which I love, by the way. You might want to consider that sight. If you were going to do that, then I'm going to recommend you go to a company called Skinner Sights. I have a link to all their stuff for Henry rifles. There are fantastic options specifically for Marlin and Henry rifles to do that. Next up, if you're going to go with a red dot, the site that I'll recommend, I have links to everything here uh, in the show notes, is going to be a Burris 300 234, so 300 234 Fast Fire 3. And I am not a huge fan of red dot sites, but I actually took quite a bit of time on this one researching this for you. And when I look at that site, it's incredibly lightweight. It's versatility. The fact that we can put one of the uh, fast fire uh, iron sights on the rear and still use it uh, by removing it and then switch back to irons really, really easily with a low mount Picatinny rail uh, and that rail and that sight adding so little weight to the gun. And and what red red dot sights do well is if you can see it with your naked eye, you can see it in the sight. And there's an odd thing about scopes. As light gets low, there are times where you can see in a scope what you cannot see with your naked eye. But there are times when you can see with your naked eye what you cannot see in a scope. So you kind of have like six and one half a dozen of the other there. And it is often the case that you can see, especially close range brush hunting, with your eyes when the scope is not very useful. And the red dot sight does that well. The red dot sight is lightning fast for target acquisition. If you're going to be hunting or target shooting in ways where you're going to be doing fast follow-ups, which is fun and doable with a lever action, it's probably the most effective out of all the options. And when I looked at this Burris, and I looked at the reviews on it, and I looked at all of the YouTube videos I could find with it, and I looked at everything that it did, I have pretty well much convinced myself, even though my initial response to this this question was going to be, just put a, um, just go ahead and, and get a Skinner sight for it and don't put an optic on it. Um, I am probably now going to buy a Picatinny rail and this sight for my Marlin uh, 1895 and 44 Magnum. So it's it, it's such a great option for a lever gun 
that it's winning me over to Red Dot Sites, even though I personally am not a huge fan. I don't know if I'm just a traditionalist. I mean, I get, it's like the guy that grew up driving a stick shift and doesn't want an automatic. The automatic's better, but he still wants the stick shift. Um, but I like it that much, and I like what I've seen about it that much, and it's the site that I would recommend for anybody in a pistol-caliber lever gun form. As far as what you need to mount it, the Fast Fire can be acquired with or without the mounting hardware for Picatinny Rail, and I have a link to the one that has the mounting hardware. You can find it for less money, but you'll inevitably find out that you're going to have to dump $80 into the mounting uh, apparatus, which comes with it and makes it cost less if you buy it together by a significant amount. So just be aware of that. As far as what to mount it with, you know, any good Picatinny rail, I have found one on Amazon for you. Looking at that, while I am very comfortable recommending you buy the site from Amazon, you may be able to go somewhere like Midway USA uh, or Mid-South Shooter Supply and get the rail for a little bit less, like 10 bucks less. Once you add in shipping, it may not be that big a difference anymore. Okay, so... Check into that, though, when you pick your rail, but any Picatinny rail. The last option is going to be a scope. And the scope has certain advantages as well, and that is longer shots. You can often make a shot with a scope that you cannot make with a red dot sight. The doe I shot the not last year, but the year before, I shot at about 110 yards with a 357 Magnum rifle, a bolt gun versus a lever gun. But the light was low enough, I, I, I would not have made that shot because I would not have taken that shot with a red dot or with iron sights because the light was too low and I wasn't really sure. But it was one of those setups with an open shot where the scope's additional light gathering capability actually made it visible the other way around. If you were going to put a scope on this gun, the one that I would recommend hands down is the Loopholt. 1.5 to uh, to 7 that I've recommended many times. Uh, it is an awesome scope, and it has been discontinued. And that scope was selling for $220 when I first recommended it, and I had no problem recommending it at that price. Since it's been discontinued and they're trying to clear inventory, they've dropped the price to $169. Bucks. Whether you want it for a lever gun or not, if you've wanted one of these, I really recommend it. Since it's the... the uh, VX1 uh, line of scopes, which is kind of Loophole's entry level, and like a Loophole entry level is like a higher level of most scopes. Uh, it may be that they're going to even discontinue that whole line eventually, because Redfield several years ago acquired Redfield. And Redfield makes another scope that's in the review that I did of the, the VX1 2 to 7 that is almost identical. And it's not quite as clear in the optics. You have to really look to see the difference. They weigh about the same. The loophole is maybe uh, like 0.2 ounces less. Um, and if they run out of those loopholes, until a loophole comes up with something that replaces it, I'll be recommending that Redfield. And it may be that that's what they actually may take this scope, put the Redfield label on it, and kind of differentiate Redfield as replacing the VX1 line. I don't have any insider information, but that may be the case, so that they can put more of a premium on the loophole name by not... Because what loophole did is they went down into, not the bargain scope market, not the sub-$100 market, but you know that market between $150 and $250. They wanted something in that market, and that's what the VX1 line did. And really, the VX1 and the VX2 line are not that different. Um, so they're actually 
probably hurting their own sales at this point. So that may be what's up there. But it is, it's been something I've been very keen on. And so I would look to that scope, if you want to scope it, because, again, with a Pictini rail and Pictini uh, low-mount scope mounts, um, you'll add very little weight to the gun. But it's not going to have the acquisition of the red dot. So those are your options. And I would look at all of them and figure out what you want. You mentioned you know, your eyes, basically. You're getting older. You know, I understand that. And that is one of the main reasons people want some magnification. Um, but I think a lot of times it's because we want to punch really neat holes in paper. And that may not be necessary. So consider the other options. Uh, again, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Burris Fast Fire along with a uh, rail and uh, the aperture sight added to the rear. And you don't have to use the brand I recommend. There's other options. Uh, Leap, uh, Lyman's makes pretty good options for this as well. I really like that because you then have two is one, one is none. And if we have something go wrong with our red dot and we drop it off of there, or we just want to have fun so we take it off the rail, um, we have, instead of that stupid buckhorn that I really don't think should be even on new guns anymore. I think if you're making a fast-handling carbine uh, today, you should be putting a rear aperture sight on it. I know that would increase the base cost uh, for manufacturers, but I think it would be worth it. It's what I would do if I was, you know, making them for Ruger or Remington or Marlin or whoever. Uh, that would be my policy as a manufacturer today. Hopefully that helps you. It's a bit of a long one, but it's one of those ones I want to give you all the options, and it's it's kind of almost like a little mini podcast there on, you know, the options for a lever gun. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. Uh, question is, what is your recommendation for a stainless steel or ceramic cookware set? Uh, setup is that my wife's birthday is coming up, and she really wants some nice pots and pans since we're uh, not in college anymore. And uh, she likes both ceramic and stainless steel and really wants to focus on making sure that there's not a bunch of coatings or junk that could scratch off over time uh, and contaminate our food. The budget that I'm looking at is probably up to about $400, and I would just uh, really like to hear your recommendations. Uh, this is Cody from Oklahoma. And I appreciate all that you do. Thanks, and have a great day. So I, I've worked with a bunch of different ceramic cookware. It's, it's always left me with something to be desired. Greystone was about the most reasonably priced thing I found that worked well, and I've recommended the Greystone pots and pans in the past from that standpoint. But they're not oven safe, and that's a limitation. They're also... Kind of thin metal-wise, they don't have a lot of heft to them, so they don't have quite as good of a heat retention capability. And that has left me with, in your case, a recommendation of stainless. However, I can't really recommend that for all your needs. So let's compare this, let's say, to cooking a turkey. We can cook a turkey whole in the oven. People do it every Thanksgiving. It's not optimum. Uh, the, the legs and thighs really should be cooked at a different temperature and for a different duration of time than a breast. That's just the case. And if you really want to make the best turkey, then we really want to break that turkey down and we want to cook those components a little bit differently so we get that juicy, tender breast without drying it out. But yet our, our legs and thighs are not just juicy but completely cooked and tender. Right. So we have two different techniques for the same bird. So with cookware, I think sometimes trying to go all in on one type of cookware is a mistake. For pots, uh, anything that you're going to simmer, stew, etc., I actually love stainless steel. Right now, 
you know, I still have some legacy stuff that's out there. But when it, you look at what I use on a daily basis, if I'm making a soup, a stock, uh, anything like that, you're going to see me reach for stainless steel. If I'm going to be cooking in a frying pan where things can stick, you're going to see me grab a carbon steel skillet from Lodge. So much so that my cast iron kind of hates me now and feels like I never take it out and play with it anymore and it never gets to do anything. I have really stopped using most cast iron other than my Lodge Walk because uh, I love that. And we have a big Lodge Griddle that I like as well. Uh, but honestly, if I didn't already have it, I don't know that I would buy one today. The, the, the carbon steel Lodge skillets are amazing. They will cook an egg without it sticking if you cook it right out of the box the day you get it pre-season. As long as you take your time and don't get too hot too fast with it uh, until you develop more patina, they are as good as any Teflon-coated pan at cooking an egg. And to me, if you can cook an egg, you can cook anything. And the real recipe for this is slow cook you some bacon uh, three or four times. And every time you're done with that pan, get yourself a ringer. I'll put a link for that today, too. It's a little piece of chain mail uh, for cleaning your skillet out. If you get some stuff stuck on it, don't use any soap. Don't use any detergent. Really cheap organic scouring powder is what you use. What do you call that? Kosher salt. Throw some salt on it, a little bit of warm water, and take that ringer, and it will come off beautifully. And when you're done, dry it. Give it a thin coat of oil. Throw it back on the stove, heat it up until it's hot. Turn it off and let it cool. And when it cools, wipe any excess oil out of it, put it away, hang it up, however you store it. If you do that, you will find that you don't even want to touch another frying pan. They're cheap. They're about, you know, between based on size, $20 to $40. Um, they'll, they'll, if you do what I just said, they will never rust on you. You'll never have to use a shred of soap on them. Uh, when I get, when I do get some sticky stuff built up on them, I throw them on the, the, the stove till they're pretty hot, dump some water in a deglaze just like you were cooking, deglazing, comes right off, fantastic. They get to a high heat temperature. I've heard many times chefs say you can season stainless steel. I've tried it. It doesn't work good for me. I don't like it. Inevitably, you end up with burned-on crap that you can't get off of your nice stainless steel pans. Um, you can do some things in stainless steel well. Uh, they do saute vegetables and things like that pretty well without sticking. But a lot of other things just seem to want to stick on you, which is why you end up between stainless steel and ceramics. There are some very good ceramic cookware pans out there. They're expensive. And they don't do a better job than the, the, the inexpensive carbon steel. So I'm going to recommend carbon steel skillets for your frying. For stainless steel. Uh, and I have a link to those ones in my review of them in the show notes for you today. On the stainless steel, I have really found the best value for the buck is something I can't recommend on Amazon. So I'm not going to backfit something so I can use an affiliate link. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, Ikea. And, and, and what I'm going to tell you more is what you're looking for in your stainless steel pots. You want a very thick, heavy-duty bottom and a good finish. And you want a lid that fits the damn thing because since it's a pot, sooner or later you're going to want to use a lid on it. And you don't want to be extorted by a company that charges you almost as much for the lid as for the pot. I have a really big stock pot that we got at IKEA for like 38 bucks, 
and the bottom is it's probably three quarters of an inch thick stainless steel. And it's kind of like shaped like a big old cauldron. It's cool. And um, everything else they have there, every pot I picked up when we were at Ikea had that big, thick, heavy-duty bottom and some of the best pricing I found on stainless steel cookware. I'm the kind of person that I really do want to touch my cookware before I buy it. So if I if I decided I, I have a lot of stainless steel by Cuisinart. Cuisinart's a good company. They make I don't really need a lot more stainless steel cookware. And I'm you know I don't want to buy stuff just to have it, right? I, if I already have something that does the job, I don't buy more. So if you wanted something kind of an off the shelf name, Cuisinart would be where I would look uh, for your stainless steel. But I would buy the individual pots you need rather than a set to have the frying pans you'll never use. Ask me how I know. You, you got what I'm saying there. Um, so I have a link to the IKEA stainless steel cookware today in the show notes. You can check that out. But I, I think you'll be happy with anything you select. And that's what I would actually recommend. If I was doing it today and I didn't have anything, so if somebody broke it and stole all my cookware and I got an insurance check and I was going to go out and replace everything, I would, t I would actually go to IKEA to pick out my stainless steel and I would just order probably, you know, two 12-inch, one 10-inch, one 8-inch carbon steel skillets from Lodge. Uh, maybe one of the big-ass ones, too, just to have it. Um, I don't have one of the really big. I don't remember what the biggest skillet they make is. I just looked it up. It's 15 inches. Um, if I didn't have so much dadgone cookware, I'd probably get one. They're, they're the most expensive one. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, they're 15 inches, like 41 bucks. But to give you an idea, the 12-inch carbon steel skillets from Lodge are $32.00. The 10 inches are 20 bucks. Uh, the 8 inches are 24. You know, get one of each. And if you decide you need a second of the other size, like a 10 or a 12, get one of those. Or maybe eventually invest them to the 15, the big giant mama jamma uh, there. And, and, and pick up your stainless steel elsewhere. Go ahead and go to Ikea. If there's one near you, drive down. I think you'll, you know, if you go in there with a couple hundred dollar budget on the stainless steel side, I think you'll be able to get exactly what you want. Pick out the different sizes you need. I like a a small, high-walled saucepan for doing small things like small amounts of gravy and things like that. I like kind of a mid-sized soup pot for doing your standard soups where you're going to make enough for today and tomorrow or enough to maybe freeze a, a quart of it and, and it's gone, and a big stock pot for making stock and large volumes of soup and stuff like that, you know, and a few other things. And, and I think you can do that for 200 bucks at Ikea and be very pleased with your results. While you're there... They have a strainer uh, that's made of stainless steel that in that big stock pot I'm talking about, it fits perfectly in there with the lid on, and it makes an awesome steamer basket, plus it acts as a colander, which is its, its main purpose. If you get the big pot, find that sucker and get it. And if you look it up on their website, just look for strainer, and you'll see it's a high straight walled stainless steel strainer and the biggest pot. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll link to those separately for you because I know which ones they are. I found them for a buddy of mine. Um, just a fantastic set if you put those two together. And I think the strainer is like 11 bucks. Anyway, before I go to the next question, I'll, I'll find it and backfill the, uh, the show notes for you on those particular parts instead of just a generic link to all of the IKEA stuff. And uh, that's that's my solid recommendation for you. And I, you know, if you were my kid and you were asking me what cup, uh, cookware to buy, I'd give you the same advice. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Mike Eckert out in North Carolina. I've got some asparagus plants that I put in two or three years ago, and they're just starting to produce a little bit. And I was wondering if you could advise me 
how long an asparagus shoot will be good after it first starts peeking out of the ground before it gets too big and I have to just cut it and toss it. And it's getting to the point that I'm getting two or three shoots at a time, but not really enough to make a whole meal. So I was wondering how long I can let it go to let them accumulate so I actually have enough for a good meal. And also, once I go ahead and cut them, how long are they going to be good to set on the shelf in the, in the fridge or on the counter was appropriate. Thank you for all you do, and let me know if you can. So what I want to caution you to is you've now grown these asparagus crumbs long enough. They're starting to throw shoots up, and you're taking the shoots for uh, asparagus. That's the point. It's not a problem, but you should probably, in your first year of harvest, only take 50% of them, which will make you go, dang it, Jack, I just told you I ain't getting enough to use it at once. Um, so first of all, the best way I know to keep asparagus fresh is get yourself a, like, like a ball jar or something kind of vase-shaped, a glass, straight sidewall. Put just about, oh, I don't know, an inch of water in the bottom. And, and when you take your spears, just stand them in that water. And, you know, if they're in there for more than a couple of days, dump the water out and add fresh water. Uh, asparagus like that uh, in your fridge will stay for a couple of weeks easy. Um, it's exactly, in many ways, how supermarkets maintain fresh asparagus. It's just they put them in a bundle and they sit that base in some water. Uh, you can actually improve that by putting like a plastic bag over the glass, but don't seal it, just a loose plastic bag. It will actually last even longer if you do that. Um, and I would, you know, take, if two come up, take one and do that until you have, and maybe this year you just don't have a giant plate of asparagus. You have a few. Now, a really cool thing to do with asparagus is wrap it in bacon and throw it on the grill. Uh, that works out pretty well. And then you don't quite need as many, um, so you just might have to use a little bit less. But what asparagus really is is a fern. And what we're eating is the tender shoots of the fern, and it's important to let that fern grow out to continue to build out the root system. So your third year is a good time to start harvesting, but probably 50% of your sprouts Your fourth year, assuming you get more, you know, maybe two out of three. And then, you know, two out of three to three out of four is a pretty good ongoing ratio to let some of that stuff grow up into that big new fern uh, and do all its good stuff to continue to recharge that root system. So simple one. That's my advice on that for you. Let's take another one. This one on Google Beds. Hi, Jack. My name is Dave. I'm from Ontario, Canada, and I have a question about Hugel bed development, wondering about what to plant in the first years to help it um, hold together and not wash away and, and grow well. So quick background, uh, I've recently made a Hugel bed uh, out of a mix of well-aged, almost spongy wood mixed with some, some newer stuff, the brush that I've taken down, um, topped that off with soil, and I've recently, whether good decision or not, opted to plant it with potatoes and onions. I'm just wondering if there's other plants I should intermix to help uh, deal with potential or nitrogen deficiencies as well as um, help it just develop a, you know, a good strength of, uh, of soil. Uh, thanks for all you do. Love your podcast. Have a good day. So, okay, first, you, the nitrogen deficiency thing. Um, 
there is a concern a lot of people have that when we bury wood, which is what has become known as hugel culture in the United States, probably mostly because of Paul Wheaton, um, and I call it wood core gardening or wood core bed because it's a more accurate description of what we do in the United States. Hugel culture in Austrian German, whatever the hell it is, actually means hill culture. And the way I know that is because Sepp Holzer himself, through his translator, told me that when I met him in Montana quite a few, many number of years ago. And so in Austria, in Germany, in much of Europe, this is not like unique something he does alone. Piling up dirt into a big hill and growing it is something that's done a lot. He started doing a wood core version of it because he had a whole bunch of low-value trees. He needed to get rid of them, and they weren't worth enough to make removing them make sense. So he, he piled up the trees and then piled dirt up on top of them. And what he actually does is he puts terraces on his mountainside, and eventually those mounds break down. In many instances, they're eventually just spread out. It's a soil-building, slow-composting methodology that produces food while it's happening. Uh, making you know millions of dollars in literal mi literal value, millions of dollars in topsoil, incredible soil uh, for almost free while producing. However, it does grow the shit out of food, and uh, it's something we've adapted here in the United States to beat little hills, big hills, and holes in the ground with wood in it. You put the dirt back on top and grow like a conventional garden, and all of it works. It is theoretically possible that you could end up with some nitrogen deficiency because the carbon in the wood wants to bond with nitrogen to break down. That is a nitrogen um, trap and a nitrogen battery, not a nitrogen sink. In other words, it's not gone. It's still there. And as it breaks down, it releases it back to the plants. The easiest way to deal with that is throw some high, high nitrogen compost or even manure, some somewhat composted manure, or some blood meal or something high in nitrogen on the wood when you build it. And then it just you can have all the nitrogen you want, and then you don't have to worry about that. Use spongy wood. It's already started doing the nitrogen thing. It doesn't need a lot. You're not going to have an issue. As far as what to plant it, whatever you want. But I like to plant, after watching what Sep did, you shouldn't be able to see an open spot. Like, it's just slam full uh, more than you would ever think throw all kinds of seeds on it whatever grows you know grows well there that's really what he does now what did we plant before he started seeding it potatoes onions shallots uh, we planted all of those things so it's probably a good starting point I would get some daikon into it because unlike your potatoes and your onions they're going to send those deep tap roots Uh, maybe some carrot as well, uh, some squashes. Uh, arugula would be a great overall cover, but whatever you want. But get a bunch of shit into it. Lock, you're, you're, you know, you're thinking the right way. I don't want it to fall down. I want it to kind of lock into itself, but not with weeds, with good stuff. Uh, so seed the hell out of it, um, you know, and then select and you know, thin out by harvesting and let certain plants grow bigger. And again, pretty much whatever you want. Definitely some comfrey. I would definitely get some comfrey roots in there as a perennial, long-standing kind of uh, canary in the coal mine plant. If you start to see uh, comfrey leaves kind of start to yellow or lose some of their color, that's a signature there that there is a nitrogen or other mineral deficiency. As good as comfrey is at providing nutrient for other plants, it has to have somewhere to get it. 
and it's a very nutrient-hungry plant. So when you see it not looking good, you know to add some organic fertilizer or some compost and what have you. Definitely, if you can, mulch it. Straw mulch is probably the best mulch there is for hugelkultur mounds. And we even did things like we made, he called them nails, probably because there wasn't a better term for it to be translated into English. Basically, sticks that have at the top kind of a little branch sticking out of them, like a tent peg. And then we took um, tree branches and put them up against there and used the nails to hold them into the mound. That held the straw onto the mound so it didn't blow off in the Montana wind. If you need to do that, something like that's a good idea. If it's a smaller mound, simply mulching it with straw and watering it daily so the straw stays wet until the plants grow through the straw and thereby anchor it. And then, you know, you have a very good drought-resistant system with hugel culture. I do recommend that people be willing to water hugel culture mounds when they first plant them and in their first year and even in subsequent plantings because while they do a great job of holding moisture at the core, if we've planted a seed that's only an inch deep in the mound, it might be another four or five inches into that mound before there's enough moisture to sustain the plant. So we may, may need to irrigate early in the season, even in established mounds, until those roots can get in there. And I, this is my philosophy on irrigation. I don't give a shit what Paul Wheaton says. If plants look stressed, irrigate them. If they look stressed due to lack of moisture, I should say. Right? If, if the ground is dry and they look sad when they should not, irrigate them until they establish themselves enough to not need you to irrigate them. Uh, and, and, and that's worked best for me. Uh, next up, I have a question on spillways for swales. Jack, how in the world do you calculate the length of a level spillway? Details. I have a 70,000 square meter catchment. My max rain is 1,100 millimeters in a 24-hour period. So I'm trying to determine how wide my spillway needs to be. Now, I've calculated that I need to outflow a certain amount. Uh, I think that number is 0.891 meters. So we're just going to call that 0.9 meters or 1 meter um, cubed that I need to outflow. So how would I determine the length of the level sill on the swales? Uh, thank you. And if it matters, uh, I'd like to know this for just swales or swales that are connected to a pond. If you need to kick this over to uh, Nick or Jeff, um, feel free to do so. I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I I'm totally willing to sell send this one on Jeff Lawton. But this is what I need you to do for me. I need you to put this into text and email it to me, and I need you to check your math. Uh, not really your math so much as your numbers. So um, your 70,000 square meters of catchment works out to about 17 acres. I completely think you may be spot on right there. And your 1,100 millimeters of rain in a 24-hour period um, is 43 inches. If you get 43 inches of rain in a 24-hour period, I don't care what your sill in your spillway looks like because you're you're flooded. I mean, your your earthworks are underwater with that kind of catchment and that amount of rainfall. You're talking um, helicopters are pulling people off of roofs. I 
I think you have that number wrong. And if you don't, it almost becomes irrelevant. I know we're supposed to look at our 100-year flood you know, number to figure out how to size all this stuff, but there is a point where everything's in the water. I guess if you have a steep enough slope or you're high enough up in elevation where your swales are, you may be able to skate even some pretty severe things, but I'm just not sure about this 43 inches. Um, let's put that in perspective. Hurricane Harvey, at the place that Hurricane Harvey dropped the most rain, was Cedar Bayou, Texas, 51.88 inches. And we're talking the entire city of Houston pretty much underwater. So I'm not, so I'm not saying, obviously it can happen, right? That was about a 24, 48-hour period there. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that I have my doubts that that is a 24-hour rainfall event for you. Now, let's talk about spillways in general, and let's let Jeff handle the bigger numbers. In general, the way I look at it, this is, I wish my spillway was smaller, said no one ever. Okay? Um, I have watched Jeff put in some fairly sizable swales and run sills anywhere from 2 to 4 meters, which would be, you know, 6 to 12 feet in width. In general, the more you get into a situation where you could have issues, the more redundancies you put in. In other words, we might put a sill in on one end of the swale for a standard sill, and then maybe a couple millimeters to a couple inches higher on the other end, a second sill, so that if that swale comes up high enough, it actually creates another point of release. And remember, it's all about pressure here, coupled with flow. So if we have a garden hose and we put our thumb over it, we increase the pressure because we've created a reduction, and therefore the water goes further and it has more power and it can do more damage or an erosion. If we take a hose and we kind of let it run on the ground where it's grass and it's pretty decent, it doesn't really do anything except pile up. But if we put our thumb over we start cutting a hole in the ground. The wider that sill, the lower the pressure, the bigger the hole at the end of the hose. So the wider we go, the more we have. And then, well, are we on a sill that is being simply compacted earth, like most? Or if we come in, we've brought in, let's say, concrete or some sort of other hard pack, hard pack gravel, or we've brought in flat rock or something, uh, this will help mitigate things as well. For most of the earthworks that people are doing out there in America today, that you're not doing huge, large-scale earthworks where you probably need to have your math checked, no matter what anybody says, by a professional engineer, a, a two- to four-meter spillway is going to be adequate. In most instances, a two-meter spillway will be adequate. And that's for swales that are generally up to as much as nine feet wide and about a foot to a foot and a half deep, in general. But we need to check math, especially when we're talking about catchment areas in the neighborhood of you know 10 to 20 acres like you're talking about here that's an awful lot of water there's a lot of other things that factor into that such as what is the permeability of the landscape is it a highly permeable landscape or is it a highly impermeable landscape impermeable I mean, how 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 will this water soak in so there's a lot of landscapes where an inch or two of rain will barely move a swale even with a large catchment 
because the land's so permeable that the water will infiltrate well. And then there's landscapes that are highly impermeable where a half inch of rain may fill a pond and a swale and everything else. As far as sizing a spillway, whether or not a dam is attached to the, the swale really doesn't matter because we're still back to total catchment. Um, and the, the amount out is going to be the same. It's not like when the dam reaches a certain point, it kicks into like an ebb and flow bed and starts dumping more water, right? It would be the same amount of water whether that dam's there or not. In many instances, it'll be less if that dam's there. For instance, let's say that we had a, a dam with a holding capacity of a million gallons, and it was down 200,000 gallons. It was 200,000 gallons low. It was 80% of fill. And a major rain event occurred. And so you would have to first put 200,000 gallons of water in the pond before we discharge. So the dams actually mitigate flood concerns as long as they're built right and they don't break. Okay, that's another thing altogether. Here's what I'm going to say. In general, a two to three meter sill will work for most of your earthworks. If you're in a situation where you think that won't work, It's probably time to talk to somebody with a civil engineering background, even if they're not a permaculturist, explain what you're doing and get, you know, even if you have to pay for it, a professional opinion. Uh, and this includes like larger dams as well. I would, I would do the same thing. Let someone who is an expert at that math do that math. But if you'll get, you'll make sure your numbers are right and get them over to me in text. I will, uh, TSPC expert in subject line. I'll forward that to Jeff and get you a more specific answer to your situation. But I wanted to give everybody some guidance on this as, as well. And again, in general, six to nine feet on your sills, especially if you put a second sill in. What I will usually do, and my, you know, my earthworks here on the property, we're talking, you know, six foot swales, 11 to 12 inches deep, uh, with, you know, a system in total of a little bit over 600 linear feet of swale with a holding capacity of about 20,000 gallons of water on relatively flat land. It's pretty forgiving. But I still design them so that, okay, here's my sill. Okay, if the sill does not work good enough, this end will push this end down a little bit, and this will be a side sill, that type of thing. So I've even seen larger-scale systems where we'll put in a, like I say, a four- or six-inch drain pipe. And that if the, the swale fills to a certain capacity, that pipe will begin to discharge water into some safe place, possibly a lower-down dam, a ravine, something like that that can handle that additional outflow. And then once it goes down below that stand-up pipe, it's back to just weeping through the cell. Uh, so it, all, it always depends, but I need to check your numbers, get it to me in text. We'll have Jeff look at it for you. Let's take another one. Hello, Jax. Jalal from Denver again. My question this time is what pump would you recommend for an indoor aquaponic system based on a 20-gallon tank with one or two ebb and flow beds? Details. After my last call, I've been slowly gathering materials for the system I talked about. I found one of those industrial kitchen racks at Goodwill for 15 bucks. It's the Ultra Zinc Baker's Rack by Seville Classics if you're interested in taking a look at it. Turns out that it holds a long 20-gallon tank pretty perfectly, and I picked one of those up at the dollar-per-gallon sale at Petco. I think that's going on through April right now. The tank overall sits about like two feet, three inches below the top of the grow bed, and I'm just using a um, Sterilite tote for that. 
So the water needs to move up probably about three or four feet pretty well, and I'm thinking an aquarium pump will probably do pretty well. Just wondering if you had any recommendations on any brands or particular models. Thank you very much. And if anybody's interested in following along in this process, I'll be documenting this on my website, jalalwilliams.com. Okay, well, the answer is almost anything will work. It's such a small requirement, and we don't really need to think about oversizing this very much, and it would make sense to use the you know, least amount of uh, power necessary. The pump that I used for my indoor overwinter project that I did as an educational project in my outbuilding came from Lowe's. It's a Smart Pond uh, DP200, DP and uh, 210 stands for the gallons per hour, just 210 gallons per hour. For what you're talking about, it's plenty. Uh, the system that I built was significantly larger than what you're talking about. It was a 300-gallon tank, 50-gallon uh, ebb and flow bed, and two 14-gallon two wicking beds. So I, I don't think you're going to go much larger than that. And you know what? The uh, baker's rack... I looked that up. That's a pretty cool idea for an indoor aquaponics system because you have multiple shelves. You can put lights right on it. I think it's really cool, man. It's very creative. I have a link to your website. I also have a link to the uh, Smart Pond 210-gallon-per-hour pump uh, from Lowe's, and you can get it from Lowe's. And anything in that range would be good. Let me tell you where I hesitate to recommend pumps on specifications alone. I don't like hoses. Now, garden hoses with fittings like we just did for Nicole Sauce up in Tennessee, uh, that's fine. But what I'm talking about is like a hose that clamps onto your pump, and it's like that tubing stuff, and it can kink easily. I don't like that crap. Power goes out, the hose kinks, the power comes back on, and the water doesn't flow, that type of thing. I like to use PVC pipe. It's cheap, it's available everywhere, yada, yada. So what's the big deal? Some of your smaller pumps use kind of an odd thread size, and it can be difficult to get PVC onto them, to find a PVC fitting that will, you know, go onto it. The, uh, the one I'm recommending, the 210-gallon pump I'm recommending, has an adapter that sits on top of it. It fits on by tension, and that has a little screw top on it, and you can do hose or whatever, but a uh, female slip, a female thread to male slip for half inch, We'll screw right onto it for PVC. So that's like a 45-cent part. You can get it at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. And uh, because I know that a PVC fitting, and if you wanted to put a union in there to make it faster to swap out or whatever, um, will work, I'm comfortable recommending that pump. But anything from 200 to 400 gallon per hour range is going to be right for you, and you're going to draw 15 to 20 watts. I believe this pump drew 18 watts when I checked it with my kilowatt, I went outside, got the pump, made sure of the model number for you before I recorded this, and I was going to plug it in the wall real quick, even though I was going to run dry and just look at the kilowatt and tell you the exact watt draw. But I couldn't find my kilowatt meter, and I needed to get the show done. But I'm going to tell you it's under 20 watts of power. So that's like a, a pretty good-sized complex for us in bulb in its draw. It's, it's, it's pretty dadgone low And it would expand the system probably as big as you would ever make it. It has about seven foot six of lift. Um, now understand what that means. That means it's seven foot six. It won't lift anymore. I generally want a pump that sized at least, uh, you know, I don't want to go 60 percent 
I don't want to go beyond 60% of lift. So if I need to go six foot, I don't even want to look at a pump with less than 10 foot of lift. This fits that for you pretty easily. Remember, in any aquaponic system, don't put your pump on the bottom of the tank, even a 20-gallon fish tank. Uh, put uh, half a cinder block in there, something, and set it at the mid-column of the water. And that's the bottom part of the pumps you want at the mid-column of the water. Um, I don't know if you want to worry about a, a, a float switch in this type of system. Basically, you're going to have a vertical stack system, and everything drains straight down into the tank. So even if there's a failure, all that happens is all the water goes down to the sump. It's, it's, it's probably not likely that you could ever have the pump pump the tank dry, so there's probably no reason for a float switch in this. They're $45. Bucks. I really recommend that you buy two because needing one and not being able to get one quickly while your fish die is not fun. So I would look at buying two of these for $90. Bucks. If you think that's too much money to put into your system, I understand how you are being very economical with this system. Go on Amazon, find a pump in the 200 to 400-gallon-per-hour range. It's $20 to $25 and buy two of those. Or buy one of these and buy a cheap secondary pump. But then you need to make sure that you're going to be able to quickly hook it up. This is why I prefer to have whatever's in my system on my shelf as a swappable part. It's the one critical core thing to your system and then the other thing that I would advise you of it would be really simple to add yourself a small aeration stone into a system like that since you have power there already and I would you know a small aerator pump and stone in there in fact I would say like there's no such thing as too much oxygen so they make air stones that are designed to go along usually for fish that are ornamental they'll be long enough to go about the length of anything from a 10 to a 20 gallon long in a single stone and they make a curtain of bubbles up the back. This seems like a great idea for you. They also make wands that do that. You can find that at Walmart. You can find that at Petco and PetSmart. You can find that anywhere that sells tropical fish supplies. Get yourself a quiet aerator, though, because that way it won't be annoying. Uh, you could also set that on a timer, and you certainly could set your pump on a timer. Your pump does not need to run 24-7, 365, though that little pump ran... at That pump that I'm recommending for you, I had it in my aviary in one of my deep water tanks. It ran for about eight months nonstop, and then I took it out of there and put it into that system. It ran another four months. So it's got a year under it, and it still runs fine. So I'm pretty comfortable recommending that as a constant run pump for you. Let's go ahead and take another one. I think it's the last one of the day. Hi, Jack. Quick question for you about education. Uh, what would you do if you were a government school teacher to prepare for the upcoming collapse of the current education system as we know it? A little bit of background. I work as a government school teacher. I've been doing so for a couple of years now, so not quite long enough to be vested in any sort of pension or retirement, um, and that would still be about eight years down the road. So a long time to stick it out in this system, um, if that's even going to be around eight or ten years down the road. Um, so what would you do? Would you get out of education altogether? Uh, would you stay in education, ride it as long as it lasts? Would you build some type of side hustle? I have a couple side hustles, but they're all around uh, our current government education system, so I foresee them going away if we get to that point. Um, just interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. 
So look, I, I want to make sure of one thing when I'm forecasting gloom and doom for the public education market. I don't want to be overly alarmist. There is a good chance that the average teacher has 20 years of employment in front of them at this time. I wish it weren't so, but I think that it could be anywhere from 10 to 20 years before we really see the complete demise of the, of the government school education sector, uh, where technology will be at such a level that it literally doesn't make sense for kids to go to a place. And we'll also have to have some confluences of other things going on, such as tax protesting, where people just say, "I'm not, we're not doing it anymore, uh, along with some level of reasonable way that you know parents can make sure their kids are looked after uh, without it costing a dear Lord's fortune and feel safe about them. Because the primary purpose of public education today, other than the programming of minds, is actually daycare. Um, with where we're at with education and the ability of children to learn through things like the Internet, it is likely that even if there was a school system today, uh, if it wasn't necessary for the daycare function, it would already be serving far less of a role. Kids would be going to school, you know, half a day, two to three days a week for certain things that having a professional educator there for would be beneficial. And this may actually be your future hybrid model. Uh, you lower the cost of education by lowering staff requirements, uh, by having kids like certain kids go to school on Monday and Tuesday, other kids go on Wednesday and Thursday. Maybe kids that need extra, extra help go on Friday as well with a lot of self-directed learning at home. By doing this, you could drastically cut education costs and improve the quality of the education. Not that I trust the state to do it right, but even they could do better doing it that way. Because then you go to a teacher dealing with 10 kids at a time instead of 30. And it's just easier to do, and you need less teachers to teach more kids if you do it that way. Um, and that could be where we go. What should teachers do? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I think this is irrelevant to teaching. If you're in a job, the first thing you should say is, do I, do I want to be here five years from now? Do I want to do this? Now, there is certain things where, like, okay, well, I'm five years from retirement or I'm seven years from retirement. I've got all this invested in it, and my retirement probably is not going to go away, so I'm going to stay if I hate it now. And I can understand people making that decision. I don't know that I would, but I can understand you doing it. If my retirement's 20 years away and I don't really want to be there in five years, I'm looking to get out now. And that has nothing to do with teaching. It has nothing to do with the decline of the sector. It has to do with... Life's too short to spend it doing something you don't really want to do. And teachers have a skill, good ones anyway, that is multifaceted and can be applied in many different ways other than teaching kindergartners how to stay in the lines uh, or teaching uh, high school students how to do math in a complicated way that they'll never use again or teaching a legitimate skill like basic mathematics or business mathematics or business law or geography or sciences in the education sector. There's many other places that you can use the skills of a teacher. Um, corporate trainers often come from a teaching background, etc., as long as they develop relevant skill sets. So I would be looking, if I were anybody in any career field right now, if I don't want to be doing this, what do I want to be doing? And I would head in that direction. If you want to teach children and you want to be a teacher, then I would, right now, I would be looking to 
try to get myself into a charter school. I think it's a much better position to be in in many instances. I would look at private schools, and people will say, well, private schools pay less. Yeah, no, they ain't, yeah. Yeah, no, and then yeah, right? What does that mean? That means uh, there'll be little private schools all over the place. that are like, you know, this church has a church school, and uh, this, like, I went to Catholic school until they threw me out because I got myself thrown out. I won't tell that story today. I've told it before. I'm sure I'll tell it again. But I want it out, so I, I made them throw me out. Um, but those are very, when it comes to private school costs, those are actually quite affordable schools, And it, hence, they generally pay less than public sector jobs. And even if they don't directly pay less, they indirectly pay less because you're not part of a teacher's union. You have less of a quality standpoint of retirement, uh, health care, etc. Uh, a lot of those are actually so small they are uh, immune to some of the health care laws. So they may not provide health care at all because they may actually have under 25 employees. Uh, some churches will actually do that. They'll create two schools or three schools separated by age. They'll have like an early grade, mid grade, middle school, you know, just like regular schools do. But they'll 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 charter each one separately so that they can keep the employee headcount for each down low enough so that it then does not have any health care requirements and things like that. There's lots of things that are done like that in many different businesses. Um, but there are also private schools that pay very well that rich people send their kids to. If you're really good, maybe you could teach there. A lot of them actually want the same level of requirements that some colleges want. Uh, but that, that is, you know, that's the reality. That's another option to look at as a teacher. Find the colleges that people are always going to want to go to. When I forecast the end of education, I don't mean it as it's all gone. I mean that we're, we're going to have schools that teach certain disciplines that it's still going to make sense to put, a, put butts in seats. And that's probably going to be mostly in that collegiate market. That's another place to look. Uh, big time, though. Do not rely on your teacher's retirements and, and what have you. Uh, be saving independently for your own retirement. I have talked to teachers who are like halfway to retirement and say, had I started saving when I started this job, And if I had anything really in my own personal retirement accounts at this point, I would probably leave, but I have nothing and I can't, and I feel trapped. trapped. And, and that is the, the, the lure and the trap that comes with jobs that promise a retirement. Because they promise a retirement, many times people within those jobs don't see to their individual savings and investing the way that they should. Another thing that I would say for teachers is, you're off for the summer. I had to work three days last You're off for the summer. When I look at what teachers make, a teacher with a salary of $50,000 a year really makes equivalent to like a $60,000 to $65,000 salary if you figure out how many hours a year they don't work. And one of the things I have to say, not to the person asking the question, but some teachers is being somewhere doesn't equal working. A lot of teachers say, well, I work this you know, 55 hours a week. And when you look at what they do, no, they don't. They're somewhere 55 hours. That doesn't mean they're doing something. Sitting there doing nothing is not working, okay? And I know not all of you do that, but a lot of you do, and then call it work because you're technically somewhere you don't want to be. Uh, but the summer you're off, do something with that time. Do something that's economically viable with that time. And if you do that long enough, you may find what you're looking for. 
you know, go go do something this summer. Go take a job, uh, a, a, you know, a job, and then stop doing that job when the school year starts back up. And if you hate that, the next year do something else. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. But if you if you earn during the time that everybody else is off, and if you think about the fact that most teachers don't do anything with that time. I'm going to get hate mail, pounding the keyboard. I work all summer long and you don't know. I said most. For F's sake, I said most, right? Okay, the majority don't. And that means the majority of teachers, despite all the poverty crying and how they have to buy tissues so they can cry at school or whatever it is and what have you, they do survive on that salary. They do survive on that salary. If you then work your summers and put away 100% of that money, I don't care if it's delivering pizzas, in 10 years you probably have more in your private retirement account than it's in your, your, your publicly funded account through work. Because you're basically taking a full three months of income and putting it aside. Even if you, you spend a third of it to reward yourself and buy tissues so you can cry about being a teacher... I don't know what's with the tissues, guys. I'm tired of hearing it. I have to buy tissues. What the hell is wrong with... Some teacher write and explain to me why you have to buy tissues. Like, what happens if you don't buy tissues? Does the room fill up with child snot, like up to your armpits or something? My God. Anyway, so try not to be facetious here. If you, you spend a third of that doing something nice for yourself, and take, you know, two, three weeks of that time even, and go somewhere on vacation... You know, um, yeah, you won't be able to say that you went to you know Europe for 45 days like some of the teachers that I know do every summer. But what you'll be able to say is I've put away more money for my retirement. And that way, let's say the teaching gig works out, you decide to stay, you get your full teacher retirement, you also have a great big nest egg. If somewhere along the way you really decide, F this, I've had enough of this, I don't want to cry on my tissues anymore, then you have something to work with. And if you do that, at least the majority of that money, in a Roth IRA, and you decide, I want to start my own gig, well, remember, you can go back and take out any of the money you contributed penalty-free, only your earnings and gains on that money are locked into that tax-deferred account. So I think that would be the best advice I could give you overall. But anybody in any field, I don't care what it is, if you hate what you do, Don't go quit tomorrow and go home to your wife and say, Jack said to quit my job because I hate it. I don't know what we're going to do. Don't do that shit to me, right? Um, find a path out. Don't do shit you hate. You can be just as miserable doing something you love as you can be doing something you hate. You could be just as broke doing something you love versus something you hate. And you might find that you can be a lot less miserable and a lot less broke doing something you love. Because when you find something you love and the passion fills you, You go for it 100%. And then it's amazing what can happen. Don't short sell yourself. I've talked to so many people that are like young people. I know I won't ever make any money. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm like, well, some places you make pretty good money as a teacher, honestly. Um, but do you understand that I'm a teacher that's paid a multi-six-figure income? What do you think I do? This is teaching. Right here, this is teaching. Start a podcast. Do it about something cool. Figure out how to monetize it. Start a blog, do it about something cool, figure out how to monetize it. You know, um, Start your own academy on whatever you want to start it on. Use the internet, use in place, You know, be creative. 
but save money for your retirement and get out of things that you hate. That's something that I would say, again, to anybody in any profession, in any line of work. You know, I, I, I didn't really hate marketing and sales. I didn't really hate working with my buddy Neil Franklin. I didn't really hate that at all. I, I, I kind of hated driving to Frisco every day, but you guys made it better when I started doing the podcast in my car. I, I just didn't really like it anymore. Long before I hated some, something, I walked away from it. When I, when I really didn't like the travel anymore that came with my you know, prior sales life, I just went and did something else. I took a major step backward financially, initially, but then got way forward of where I had ever been before. And then when I got just a little bit unhappy with that, I started podcasting. And if I didn't love podcasting, I'd stop. I love what I do now. But, you know, I was in my late 30s before I figured out what I really loved. But it was a willingness to go wherever I had to, to do the best I could in the meantime, that made it possible. So no matter what profession you're in, always be willing to walk away from what you hate and always be looking for something that you can figure out how to love. With that, we have come to the end of another episode of the Survival Podcast together. And I uh, want to remind you, there is a completely painless way to support the Survival Podcast. And that's whenever you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. When you go to tspaz.com, you can see all my reviews on Amazon. But as long as you go to tspaz before you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. Uh, today's item of the day is, a, is a, a, a return item, one that I've brought around a couple times before. I brought it around today because I just ordered another one. I pride myself in ordering things that in many instances are a lifetime purchase. You buy one, and unless you decide you want two or three, you never buy one again. I think this item is pretty damn close to that, but I managed to break it. It's the French Press Coffee and Tea Maker Complete Bundle uh, by Kitchen Supreme. And it is the best French press for the money that I've ever found. And what you do with a French press, basically, mostly you make coffee and tea. There's actually some emulsions you can do for cooking with French presses, uh, but that's something we'll cover another day sometime, maybe on a show about doing stuff like that. But uh, this one is really great. It's about 40 bucks. It's made of glass, and it's in a stainless steel uh, holder. And it's a triple screen. It's got some cool spoons with it, including one with a little kinky thing in it that fits on your cup really nice. Uh, it's an awesome French press. How'd I break it? Well, you did hear me say it was made of glass, right? <laughs> so I did the one thing that will break this thing yesterday, and I dropped it, and it shattered. Uh, and uh, after I said some bad words, and uh, my wife ended up cleaning it up because I got the dogs out of the house so they didn't get cut and grabbed my granddaughter so she didn't run in there and get cut. Uh, and then I used one of my old Survival Podcast uh, French Press mugs to make a single cup instead of two cups like this makes. Um, I went on Amazon and I bought a new one. So I thought it would be just fitting that today I would bring it back around. There is no greater endorsement I can give a product to when it is worn out, when I break it, when I lose it, whatever it is, and I need a new one, I go buy the exact same model. And, and that's what's unique, I think, about my recommendations at tspaz.com. There's a lot of people out there that do reviews of items and all that never touch them. And some of them even do some pretty good research, and they'll say, you know, here's our three picks, and this is the best for this, that, and the other. But if you actually track that person down, they've never touched one. If it's at tspaz, I've used it, I own it, that's why I recommend it. Remember that, and when you shop online, shop at tspaz. 
Check out this uh, coffee and tea maker. I have some pretty cool tea recipes in the review and the write-up today. You can learn more about that, including the uh, the modified Nine Mile Farm blend tea, which I think is even better than the original. And uh, if you don't have a French press in your life, this would be one to add. Today's song is a really old one. Um, this goes back to 1967. And uh, it's called People Are Strange by The Doors, and it's off Strange Days. And here's what Song Facts says about this. Jim Morrison was depressed. He went to Robert Kringer's house, and they went to a canyon to watch the sunset, at which time Jim realized he was depressed because, quote, if you're strange, people are strange. He then wrote the rest of the lyrics, which are about feeling alienated, uh, just feeling outcast. You know, I, I, I think that every person at one point or another feels outcast, including people that we think of as being, you know, in the inner circle or the inner clique or whatever. I know that when I came back from the Army and uh, went back to my hometown, I had a lot of friends that were really excited that I was coming back. And they wanted me to kind of just drop back in where I walked out of, you know, three years earlier. And I actually gave it a shot. I kind of knew I was going to leave and come down here to Texas, but I did give it a shot. And it didn't work. And in time, I realized that it wasn't them. It was me. On some levels, I had grown up, and they hadn't because they stayed in the same place they grew up. And, you know, it wasn't a great economy. They'd got whatever little job that they could. They, they really didn't have any career path. You know, these were the friends that were still there. The friends that were on some kind of path were off in college or something like that because they had a four-year path. I had a three. You know, maybe I'd see them, but they were in a different world than the, the friends that were just trying to hang out and still still be kids, honestly, you know, at 20, 21, 22 years of age. You know, some of them, to be fair, were a year behind me. I had a lot of friends that were juniors when I was a senior, and those folks, so they had only been out of school, you know, two years. But they seemed all of a sudden strange to me, people that – I grew up with people that I hung out with, people that I went fishing and hunting with, uh, people that I, I spent time with around a campfire and drinking beer when we weren't supposed to. They seemed strange to me. When I came here to Texas, I didn't know anybody. And when I'd get into a group where I was kind of the third wheel, the outsider, you know, for a while I kind of felt like I really don't fit in with these people. And the reality is, People are strange. When John Adams sent the uh, select the song list with this on it, he said, no truer words have ever been spoken. And the reason people are strange is because we're all different. So we all react differently to the same types of things. We find a lot of commonalities with people, but in the end, you know, I'll put it to you this way. It's all the people that were a little bit weird that are successful out of my high school. The people that are just a little bit weird. You know, not the people that were like, you know, this guy needs a cork on his fork so he didn't put an eye out when he eats. I'm not talking about that. But the people that were just a little bit outsider, a little bit, I don't give a shit what you think about me. You know, the the, the, the kid that I, I remember, one kid, like, obviously he was gay. I mean, it was one of those kids, like, when people say people aren't born gay, you're like, well, how do you explain this, right? Um He's an incredibly successful graphic artist in San Francisco now. I know it's kind of stereotypical, but I think it was more the, the opportunity there. No, another guy that was, uh, he's the kind of guy that you could, like, eh, he could be gay, but he wasn't, that kind of thing. 
and but just a little ostracized and all. He's on, it's kind of odd, but he's kind of in that same world, uh, but more of doing high end corporate um, graphics and advertising campaigns. He's in Philadelphia now. Uh, a girl I know that was good looking girl, but she was just a little different. Um, now it has her own cosmetics line. She had run um, multiple fitness centers out in California. It, it's all the people that were not quite exactly what they were supposed to be, whether it was as a jock, whether it was as a student, whatever. It was all the people that stepped out just a little bit, and everybody else, they're in some mundane career, or they're still living right in that little coal town. So, yeah, people are strange, and sometimes when you're strange, it's hard to fit in But it's being different. It's being different that gives you the edge if you figure out how to channel it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone Women seem wicked When you're unwanted Streets are uneven When you're down Strange.